0: I don't
1: know Anything. Uh, what Joel's, would you
0: say? Anything? Joel's basically a rebel Cool This is his way of being like you know what I'm a rebel um, If there's a rule I'm going to try and find it I'm going to try and break it we're going to see what we can Do here so he's like you know what EYP don't like it when we curse So fuck that
1: I'll help you with that
2: How do you pronounce your surname, Masha?
1: It's Karahot. Skorohot.
0: Skorohot. or Yes, Skorohot?
1: Either is good.
0: <laughs> it's a no whole matter of difference. No, it doesn't Both make too much right?
1: difference. No, just do it fast so <laughs> no one can see. That's all right. <laughs> I'm the worst one pronouncing EYP surnames. Like, when I'm on board, I just introduce president by the name, which is it's name country. And they're like, okay, Maria. Good job here. <laughs> so I don't know how you pronounce half of the surnames of the UAPers I know. So you're good.
0: That, that's a fair point, uh, especially
2: with the surnames
0: that some people tend to have. And then for the podcast, would you prefer Maria or Masha?
1: Oh, Masha is kind of more natural, but then Let's it doesn't Masha, make man. it harder for you. That would probably sound more realistic.
2: Let's go with that then. Okay, cool. So today we have our guest from Belarus, Masha Skorop. Oh.
0: <laughs> <Scrub. laughs> um, <laughs> this is actually uh, cool
1: because the surname literally translates into "going fast." So if you just pronounce it real quick, that makes a lot of sense.
2: That 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 works. Um, so, <laughs> could you give a bit of background on yourself to our listeners that have not met you in? in real life. Who are you? What did you more or less do? What's your legacy in UAP?
1: All right. It's been quite a weird journey if you think about it. Cause the first time I joined, I think that was actually a session presided by Nathan. No, it was not you. You were a VP, but uh yeah, but you were on board. Uh it was a Ukrainian national in Lviv, I believe, back in twenty 20- 13 or something. Uh, and then I was a delegate for a couple of times when a good friend of mine introduced me to the organization. And I still remember the feeling when uh, someone tells you what it's like to be a new or and like how the processes are structured and like what the whole thing is. And you're still really confused up until you come to the session and you get even more confused. And then by the end of it, you figure like how how sessions work, how the whole, you know, process is structured and you fall in love with that instantly. Or at least I did. I loved it from the first session I joined. But I kind of had this, I was pretty confident being a delegate is not what I'm going to do in the organization. There was never my like I don't know, sweet spot. There wasn't something I particularly enjoyed. So I kind of fell in love with how the organization works, but I was like, okay, I'm going to try different roles. And then I think in the next session I went to, I got selected to be a delegate at an international forum. And then I never came back to the organization for, I don't know, three or four years, I believe, probably was four years until I was like, okay, we have to do this in Minsk. Why don't we do this in Minsk? And yeah, we applied to to host a regional session in Minsk that I had organized. And back then, it was the first experience as an official after I've been a delegate for like three times. And that was crazy because back then I didn't understand that. I had no clue that's not a normal thing to do. Like uh, if I was a delegate, what do I not know about organizing a session? So I had organized the first regional in EYP Belarus since perhaps early 2000s, like 2005 or something, Uh, because it's been quite politically tough uh, and there were no sessions happening for quite a while. But then at some point it stopped being so problematic, but people kind of still kept this attitude of we cannot have sessions, this is illegal. Uh, And at some point it was like, well, wait, it's not. Like, you can at least try that. And then we were looking for the presidents and that was like the biggest struggle. Uh, I remember... Masha, who was the president of UAP Belarus of so the national board back then uh, she came up to me with a list of like 50 people, uh, like 48 of them crossed out, she's like, okay, those declines <laughs> I was like, okay, are we desperate to find a president now? Uh, but then we got we got Ali wow. on board uh, and that was probably the best like HR decision of the organization that we could have potentially made back then because he literally helped me had organized the event and he was kind of fine with all the you know, backside that it has because he was like, okay, where are we having resotyping? Like two weeks before the session, I'm like, what is resotyping? He's like, okay, this is apparently, you know, what the, the chairs team does the night before the general assembly. And I'm like, oh, okay. So that's where the chairs disappear. Is like, back then for me as a delegate, the same that happens on the typing night was a party. Like, you, you just need to book a party venue. And he's like, yeah, good with a party venue. What about the resa? Yeah, so that was quite a bit of surprise for me. Uh, and there were a couple of things that I, I kind of learned on the go. But that was also probably one of my favorite sessions. And it, it was really cool to see how many new people it introduced to the organization and what kind of like new start it gave to EYP in Belarus. Uh, and then I was like, okay, it's interesting to chair. And I started chairing, VPing, doing some ISs. So yeah, and then kind of got into the the officials part of it. And then I presided the board of EYP, EYP Belarus twice. Uh, it never was too competitive, <laughs> if you think of it. I don't think it is in most of the national committees though. Uh, so like best case, two people apply. Second time I applied and I was the, the only one who even tried to compete for the position. And so we, yes, we focused on starting to have sessions and like spreading the, you know, the words uh, about UAP Belarus in the kind of international community, building some network and kind of talking to people who who started feeling like, okay, you know, the guys are back on track. Yes. And then my last term was one and a half terms ago. <laughs> and then my sister kind of took over, uh, which is funny, but then again, no one applied. So she, she's doing this now. And then... Yes, and then basically the presidential elections happened in Belarus and the revolution entered the chat. And uh, yes, we stopped being too active because Corona plus the whole political trouble in the country does not really contribute to to being very active as a national committee. So, yeah, I think that's pretty much what I did.
0: Nice. Um when you were saying there about like your, your first session in Lviv and that, it started to make me think of, I remember my, my, my first, um, Oh, well, actually my, my only EYP, um, Belarus session was actually in, uh, Vilnius in 20, I think it was in January, 2013. And it was the first Belarus, uh, regional session after a, like, yeah, a large period of time where there hadn't been sessions. And, I remember all, all of the logistics and stuff of trying to make sure we could organize this session there, but then people weren't allowed to be aware that it's an actual EYP session when they were kind of coming back home and things like this. And for me, that was, that was, that was almost crazy. I, I, I had never, I, I didn't think that something like that would be in Europe. I'm there just doing some EYP, just going to sessions here, going to sessions there, and then realized that the majority um, of the delegates for the session had to hide the fact that they were coming to the session. And we had to keep writing like different excuses and stuff like this in order to kind of come over the border. No one could take resolution booklets with them and like all of this. So how was it for you going through that experience as a delegate?
1: Ah. Oh. I think I became pretty active in like the NGO sector quite a while before I got active in the EYP environment. So this kind of, this itself was not a very big surprise for me. I I knew exactly, or at least I thought I knew exactly what could happen, you know, at the border and like what kind of rules you're supposed to follow. I would say this was a way bigger problem for me when I had organized the first regional uh, that actually happened on the Belarusian territory because we were kind of trying to find this balance between uh, warning people that we can never know for sure. Like, most likely, it would be an exaggeration to say that we're going to be detained and the police will come. But then again, you, you never know. Uh, so I was kind of trying to keep this balance between trying to explain people they're not going to be stopped by the police at the border and then just, you know, end up being detained and spending five years in the Belarusian prison, which is literally what many thought could be the case. But then, at the same time, it would be kind of stupid of me to not say, you know, something can happen, and I don't know exactly what, but like we can have a couple of police officers entering, and we might have some KGB delegates. How fun is that, right? Uh, so I was trying to maintain this balance, and then I remember Ali at one of the calls was also like, "Okay, I think you know it's time we got back to, or we actually got talking about how how is this? Is this safe, or is this not?" And then again, when uh, a lot of people were kind of afraid and people are still afraid to do Belarusian sessions, like uh, for the nationals that Joel joined in Minsk, Uh, we also had some cancellations because people were like, oh, my parents won't let me go to Belarus or I'm just afraid to go to Belarus, you know. Uh, I know some people are not even considering applying for sessions because, hey, that's Belarus. Uh, And that kind of makes sense on the one hand. But on the other hand, what we really wanted to do is show you can actually come. And, you know, if you're like... Uh, walking with a resolution booklet in your backpack, that's totally fine. No one's going to just you know, stop you in the subway and be like, oh, wait, are you a group of people doing some EYP weird stuff? But the problem here is also that we have this stupid uh, legal aspect uh, in Belarus where they generally try to fight against any potential events that NGOs hold. So after one of the presidential elections back in 2010, I believe, Uh, They introduced a law that would forbid a group of people of more than three to gather on the street together without, like, getting the approval from the state, which is kind of stupid because definitely, like, if you're just walking with a bunch of friends, no one ever checks that and no one stops you and no one, you know, detains you for that. But... At any point, if they feel you're starting to be dangerous or if they feel they start smelling of a demonstration, you know, or it looks like people are about to you know, just hold the flags and start shouting, it could be a problem. Uh, and so again, you kind of have to warn the people that legally any group of like five and more people, including the transfers, because transfers are big, right? You have like 50 people <laughs> taking the subway and going from one part of the city to the other. And then we couldn't afford to just take taxis for everyone. Uh, so they kind of had to know this is the thing, But on the other hand, like we needed to portray it in a way that people would still come and not be afraid because it's not too big. Uh, so that was a challenge, yes. <laughs>
2: Similarly to Nathan, I was also, I think I was a jury member in one of the Belarusian nationals that was a combined nationals with Lithuanian. And so what what was the... Could you tell us a bit more about the background of EYP Belarus? How did it come to the point where you needed to have your sessions in a completely different country?
1: I think it partially has to do with EYP as the organization and the concept of what we are doing. And uh, even though we do claim to not be a political or, a political organization, we still work with pretty political things and we do discuss political topics and even though we don't really have the power to implement them or stuff like that it it really indeed sounds political and less political things sound political to our government as well so this I think is partially the reason and then I believe but I'm not the best person to be talking to you here probably worse talking to some of the EY peers who were active before we kicked in Uh, but I do know some of the people and uh, from what I've heard Another part of it is that at some point the people who were involved in EYP who were in the board of EYP Belarus uh, were also pretty active outside of the organization in various uh, civil society and NGO movements. So it kind of got associated uh, with this as well. Uh, But this is pretty ironic because there is this model United Nations uh, you guys all love (laughs) and they're doing completely fine in the country They are like going to schools. They are inviting officials They are cooperating with the United Nations and everything is like fancy and cool And if you think about it the difference between what they do in model United Nations If we like take aside all (laughs) all the battles we've been having with these guys, but like it's not so different like Perhaps the only thing that really differentiates the two is that we are part of the United Nations, uh, as opposed to not being part of the EU and having not so much to do with European Council even. Uh, but this is like, this is a minor thing that shouldn't potentially be making so much of a trouble. But that's what it is. I also think at some point it just, because uh, like the general uh, political context of the country is that we're going back and forth. And sometimes you can do more, and sometimes the government is like stricting the measures and you can do way less. So living in Belarus, and it is also the case for UAP Belarus, is constantly trying to check what you're allowed to do. You're like, okay, if we try to have this seminar, good, it worked. Maybe we can have a bigger one. Cool, it worked. An even bigger one, oh no, detentions, step backwards. (laughs) So you're kind of constantly uh, looking at Okay, can I do this? Yes, cool. And if this, cool. So yeah, we. I think they just probably at some point got into one of these waves where the measures, anti NGO and civil society measures were streaked. But then again, not the best person to be talking about the historical part.
0: From those people who were like really active back in like the early two thousands, um, I remember there was one guy. I remember having a chat with him uh, quite a few years ago. It must have been almost a decade ago. And he talked us through one, one of his stories, actually, one of his stories towards the end of e- of EYP Belarus, as we knew it at that time. And he said that they were organizing a whole bunch of different sessions and stuff underground. So it would be like literally in basements of cafes, in basements of university, in basements. And it all, they had this habit. Of doing it in these in these basements because it's the best way not to be seen is you do it in a basement then you don't have to deal with issues uh, and the university was helping with them to do this until one point where he was called to the office of the head of the university so like the principal of the university or something like this and he walks in there and there's the principal and there's two guys of the officers? In, two guys in Classy. suits and then uh, like the principal's like. Kind of like nervously saying thank you for coming and then just walks out the door (laughs) and then he sits down and there's two KGB officers who start having a chat with him and informing him that this is not going to happen again.
1: Yeah, pretty likely. His name is actually Victor. It's Victor Rodenka. Victor. Yeah.
0: Yes. And he's got like that wavy hair. Yeah, yeah, he
1: does. I I think we actually, the first time we met was perhaps the first session I did that the one where you were in war, I wasn't sure if that was, I'm, I'm not sure if that was that one, but I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah. We, we never really talked too much, but I, I know he exists. <laughs> yeah. And the KGB story, I think another thing that kind of adds up to the trouble is that we call, we still call them KGB officers and we still call the, the whole organization KGB, which yes, uh, <laughs> as stupid as it is, uh, it does sound even worse to people as opposed to if you just said like a few police officers, like, okay, happens. And then you say KGB guys, and people just get uh, crazily scared, which is understandable. But yes. So that's interesting. And also, this is also the case for the Belarusian delegates because... Uh, Legally, uh, back home, you can also not uh, operate and like do things and organize things without officially being registered as an NGO. Uh, And people know this, like everyone is well aware of that. Uh, Again, it depends on whether they decide, you know, they want (laughs) to make you some trouble or not really. Uh, and so all the delegates or most of the delegates who were applying were like, "Do you guys have a registration? Can I see the documents? Like, is this legal? Uh, and again, we kind of had to balance between, yes, but no, you know, we are acting on behalf of a different organization because we technically cannot, you know, do this because we don't have the registration, uh, or we didn't have the registration back then. Oh, yeah, another thing I for Way Belarus actually registered the organization, which at some point became pretty possible. Uh, yes, so that was also problematic, but at the same time, I mean, for for even the first regional that we held, we invited the German ambassador uh, to come to the gen- to the General Assembly, and like we promoted the session, and we got quite a bit of applications. So like this was pretty public, and uh, if they wanted to turn it into a problem, they would have. So I I would say it was pretty successful. I was also very concerned because like Belarusians, this is less political. This is just, I don't know, maybe that's not only Belarus, but people back home tend to register for an event. And then we have this unspoken rule in the NGO sector that if 100 people registers, 50 comes. So like it's never the same amount of uh, delegates, participants, Mm -hmm. it's like cut it twice and then expect this number of people to come. But it doesn't really work for UAP because like for a different event, you would just uh, accept twice more delegates or twice more participants and then half of them showed up and you're like, cool. And for UAP, you can't really accept two times more delegates than you expect to make it to the actual session and you can never predict if the people who drop out are you know, equally split between different committees and you don't end up like having Deva empty and then like, uh, 25 people in cult. And so I was so freaking concerned about that. And then the nights before the CGO day, and I think to the best of my knowledge, yes, we had a day for CGO and committee work. It was kind of joined, if I'm not mistaken. And then, yeah. Another one of committee work with whatever, uh, and so Ali was like, "Okay, how many delegates do we expect tomorrow?" <laughs> and I'm like, "None to 55." <laughs> and like, and he looked at me, and I was being like very serious. I'm like, "I don't know. We may, like, we may as well just not have anyone." And he looks at me, and he's like, "What do you mean none?" And I'm like. I can't promise anyone actually makes it to this. Like I did my best, you know, we've been calling them, we've been, you know, following up on them, but no one can know. And then we had a very, very interesting venue in a sense that is like so awkward to get to. And like, if you've never been there and most of the people have never been there, like you get lost on the way. It's literally 10 minutes from the subway, but you need to know, you know, which direction and how. how. To behave in this 10 minutes. So, I recorded like video instructions where I physically walk from the subway, commenting like which turns to take and where. And I uploaded this on YouTube and I shared the links with delegates, and still half of them got lost. So, like, when uh, when we come to the venue in the morning and I have like 35 delis standing, I'm like, okay, this is happening, right? It's not like we don't have anyone. But then I'm like, okay, maybe like 10 more are late. So we're still missing 10. And we start calling like friends and friends of friends and people who applied and didn't get accepted. So we just add up uh, like five to seven delegates who were like, okay, I'm taking a quick breakfast, like leaving straight away and I'm going to join you for the session. So I actually think we, we ended up having like full committees, which is cool.
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting to see how the situation changed so much during one's participation in the organization. Like, how you can go from having a daily fear of KGB officers to actually being able to publicly register your organization and advertise it.
1: But I feel like it's also worth noting that, like, you need to have a person who will take care of that. Like, you need to have someone who will take the documents, go to the whatever you call this, uh, organization that takes care of this, like register, you know, celebrate and stuff like this. But at the same time, it's not too much about us and what we do in the organization. Uh, It's rather that the political situation in the country at a certain point allows certain actions. So I was basically just born at a time (laughs) where I would turn 20 and be able to do this. Uh, Now, again, currently we can't really, and that's not even because of Corona we would not even consider having like a physical event in the country and it's not because we've been doing something differently or we've been making mistakes but just because the political situation changed like boom and this is no longer doable uh so we do really like as much as we can do and like as much as we can promote the organization you know internationally and like be talking to people and organizing things it's still you know, it it has a lot to do with what we are allowed to do. And this has nothing to do with our actions. It's just the general political environment we're having, which is sad. Yes. And I feel like when I registered EYP in Belarus, that was at this point, that was rather like a symbolic action. Uh, And I think this was aimed at the network internationally, rather than at anything that is is going to change in the country and like for the MC because it's not too much. And I knew this would be like a big step and this would sound really great because this is something you've been struggling to do for the last, I don't know, 20 years. So when you say, hey, we just get registered, this this sounds cool and this motivates the people and this kind of gives you this, you know, push to to proceed and persevere. But at the same time, legally, it doesn't really make you a more powerful organization. It's just a paper and certain monthly expenses that you have to take care of. but does not necessarily, you know, make the chances and the opportunities you have bigger. But I had this idea when we had the national in Minsk, uh, and I was uh, an NC president back then. And I was like, okay, uh, so the session was uh, happening. When was it happening? So it marked the anniversary of EYP Belarus. And we were like, okay, that's such a great opportunity to, you know, gather the people together to invite the previous generations of UIPers. And I remember we set up a chat on Facebook uh, with like UAP Belarus alumni that gathered like, I don't know, tens or like hundreds something people uh, from like different years. And I talked to people who are like 35, uh, 40 who've been, who'd been active in the organization before us. And they were sharing stories, and we even thought of setting up a committee uh, for the General Assembly where they come and like defend their resolution because it's kind of cool, you know, they, they've seen EYP way before we did that. And then my idea was that when I give a presidential speech at either the opening ceremony or like the, whatever, the Euro concert, like there was some big speech. I think it was the Euro concert because uh, we also kind of joined it with the alumni, uh, speeches and stuff. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to come, you know, come up to the stage and like, uh, not tell anyone that we've been through all this legal stuff and you know and just tell people we are actually registered and that's going to be a cool celebration and everyone's going to be so happy but then the problem there was that the biggest thing that you need to do when registering an NGO is to come up with a name that they approve and this kind of sounds stupid because it's like a small thing to do right you Make up a name of an organization, just go and apply. Plus you have the name, it's European, US Parliament, galleries. But then they have like 15 pages of restrictions of what you can and cannot call an organization. And then it cannot contain the word parliament because parliament refers to like very specific political institution and you are not a parliament. You cannot have European because that's different problem. Uh, You cannot have youth because you're not speaking on behalf of like all the young people, whatever. So like it turned out we can't really, and I (laughs) have the stupidest part here is that you apply uh, and you can attach like three name proposals and then they review them and they reject them and you apply again. So it takes freaking time because you can't attach like 20 and they just choose one and say, okay, let's go with this one. So I send in three, I get rejected. I send another three, I get rejected. Five times later, I'm like, okay, I'm out of names. Like, what do we call ourselves? And they also have a lot of stupid requirements. It's a legal name. It doesn't even matter. The only place you see it is on the official like registration certificate that says, like, this is what, you, what you're called. Maybe on your stamp, if you have one, we don't have one. So it's just this page. And it took me two months to actually come up with a name until I hired an accountant who was like, okay, I'll take care of this. And we are now, like, the name we currently have is, like, 15 words uh, that have nothing to do with UIP whatsoever. Uh, but that was the reason why we failed to to get the registration by the time of the session, because I just couldn't get the name approved. How cool is that?
0: So what are those 15 words? I think we, we're going to have to hear uh, that. I, I definitely want to know what those 15 <laughs> words
2: oh, are. Oh,
1: I think, uh, I don't know if you guys know Dr. Alan Flowers, but he's like considered to be the oh, yes. patron of UIP bellers. whatever. I hope he's not listening to this. But anyway... <laughs> <laughs> so I remember.
0: Don't restrict yourself. It's okay. We, we've all been there. We've all had to be that person, those half an hour, maybe hour, hour and a half conversations where you're late for a meeting, you're trying to go, you're like, okay, let's wrap this one up, let's wrap this one up. And then you're just trying to, then you realize you just have to walk away.
1: <laughs> yeah, probably this. Yes. And I remember he, because that was a big thing for him, apparently, too. is he can't enter Belarus. I think he hasn't been able to since. One of the presidential elections again, so like he legally can't come into the country, which he doesn't like a lot. And so it was a big thing for him to see that the organization was registered. And he made a post on Facebook where he said something like, oh, cool, look, these guys have registered the organization in Belarus. That's so cool. And then he, like for the half of the post, he was just making fun of the name. And <laughs> to be honest, I can't, I can't even recall what exactly it says, but it's something like, the organization that uh, organizes different youth events, uh, something, something, uh, yes, that's crazy. I can, I can actually check it out. Hold on, if I have a second. Oh yes, the center on organizing events aimed at developing the cultural interaction of young people. It actually says young people, by and then BY is in Srelex because you can't use. Lighting words in the name. So, yes, this is next level weird.
0: (laughs) Nice, (laughs) nice it's a beautiful name to have absolutely so you you are making sure that you say that at the beginning of every event um you're gonna like right then all of the comms and
1: yeah, yeah yeah absolutely like the event has been brought to you by the european US parliament belarus officially known as the organization aimed at org yes but that means i'll have to learn that that's insane right <laughs> uh yes yeah. and but it's also funny because it legally connects me to the organization because like on the legal side of it I'm the only person who has anything to do with it therefore the only one legally responsible for anything that happens within the organization which is kind of okay now cuz even though I'm not in the board like I know what 80% of people on board so like we can communicate and talk about things and I can be like okay maybe we shouldn't have that because you know <laughs> but then like a couple of years later when i assume i want no too many people on board that's kind of weird so this is also one of the things to to think about because legally i i can't even find a replacement i will have to close the organization and reopen again exciting <laughs> so much looking forward another name to come up with that's, that's impossible we should probably <laughs> start thinking today because it takes time that's for sure <laughs>
2: Uh, From now on, whenever I present a session, I'm going to welcome people to the organization that arranges youth events, also known as
0: EYP. It sounds a bit like a, a, t- a team building activity where you, uh, where you get two teams, you give one team either a concept or a phrase or something like that, and then they have to communicate it to the other team, but there's so many words they can't say, or you just give them ridiculous restrictions and they have to try to do that. It sounds like you just went through this kind of team building activity. It's like, okay, try to say EYP batteries, but you're not, to say, you're not allowed to say European. You can't say youth and you can't say parliament, but go ahead.
1: But isn't this exciting? There are so few people or relatively few people who are currently involved in the organization who could actually be part of a session held in by UAP Belarus in Belarus. That's that makes you very special. I think Nadan also pretty much counts because <laughs> you've been part of interesting times too.
0: So so far we've been we've been kind of talking about how EYP batteries has either changed or the different things that we're able to do at one time or another, and everything kind of depends on the country situation. And like towards the end, you you also start to talk about how. Today, even if we didn't have COVID, you wouldn't be able to organize an event in EYP Belarus because of the current political situation. Do you want to tell us a bit more? Uh, I'm sure like lots of people who are listening either saw certain headlines, maybe some people kind of read in a bit more, but like over the past year, uh, what's been happening in Belarus?
1: Okay, it's actually a good day to talk about it because it marks a year since Svetlana Tikhanovska, so the woman who is like basically the currently elected, the current elected president of Belarus. I was going to say of EYP Belarus. That's so stupid. Yes, uh, it's been a year today since she applied for presidency. So like she handed in the documents and said, OK, I hereby certify I want to try this. But yeah, so we were about to have our presidential elections today last year. So the actual election day was on the 9th of August. And then it was initially supposed to be just, you know, another boring election and electoral campaign because everyone wasn't very hopeful. And, uh, you know, most of the people had lost any kind of trust in the political system of the country by then. But then a bunch of very interesting events took place one by one. At first, some very famous people applied for presidency and, you know, they announced they're going to run for president. There was uh Viktor Babarika, working uh, in one of the the big uh, banks operating in Belarus. He was part of the bank management, was like in the executive board of the bank. Uh, and then the guy, Viktor Tsipkala, Valeriy Tsipkala, who, uh, who initiated the first IT technology park in Belarus. So like a lot of very famous and big figures applied and people were like, wow, that was surprising because back then no one thought anyone would even, you know, bother taking part in this because it's so fake. And then when they applied, the way it works is that you are supposed to gather a certain number of signatures of the potential voters before you get accredited as the candidate for presidency. So they started having, started gathering the signatures from the people And it generated so much interest. People were like lining up day and night to leave their signature. And so most of the candidates got way more than they were required to and way more than anyone has ever collected. And the incumbent president literally like wasn't, you know, uh, so much ahead of them, even though everyone knows like half of his were fake and uh they would like come to factories and just force people to leave their signatures. And for the independent candidates, people were like voluntarily helping them, joining uh, you know, their their team and like helping them collect the signatures and stuff. So it became pretty obvious it's gonna be different this year. And people started really being excited about, you know, how the whole thing is gonna turn up. And so of course the response from the government followed. And they ended up detaining all the famous uh, political candidates, all the guys who were big and who were aiming big. So they ended up in prison. So they could no longer apply for very, very fake accusations. This is like stupid as it could be. And it's also stupid because there were like criminal cases opened against them for things that... Like if this is the case and you knew about it, you should have done it like years ago. What were you waiting for? Like, so yeah, most of the people ended up in prison, and at some point there were like three biggest uh, independent candidates, and at some point none of them could really apply. And so the wife of one of the candidates who was imprisoned, she was like, "Okay, I'm gonna run instead of him." You know, what what do we do? Because we need some independent candidates still. And she actually, like, her application was approved and she got registered. And a lot of people believe, and that seems to make a lot of sense, that the only reason she was registered as an independent candidate is because Lukashenko never thought she was a big thing. Like, he never took her seriously because she's just a housewife. You know, she's cooking food. People don't really know her. She wasn't very, I know she wasn't like an outstanding, uh, you know, public figure or a public speaker or anything. But she basically accumulated all the support people have been showing to the independent candidates, to herself. And so she ended up getting most of the votes on the elections. But of course, the elections were falsified. And so there has been a lot of drama going on about that, where we still haven't seen the results from most of the polling stations, because we had independent observers, and they were trying not to let them in. So not to let them observe. And they were coming up with, it's legally possible, like, you can do this. So they were coming up with fake reasons not to let people in. And that's when Corona stepped in and they were like, oh yes, Corona crisis, such a good idea. You can't come to the polling station because Corona. So they limited the number of observers and the only observers who were let in were like pro-governmental guys who couldn't even care like less and they weren't really following what was happening. And that was when we got a lot of pictures uh, where people are like 10 minutes away, or 10 minutes, 10 meters away from the polling station, trying like bringing in some tables, like standing on the tables and trying to see, you know, at least how many people enter and how many people leave the polling station. And um, that was crazy. Also before that, there has been a lot of interest that people showed in applying to join the the electoral commissions, like the people who actually count in the votes, because that's usually where they don't let you come either. Like they don't let independent candidates, uh, not candidates, but like people from the civil society join those. But they've also never seen so much interest. And of course, out of like all the people who applied, maybe two or three in the entire country got in. And there were also some funny events where they, because there is a procedure where they start discussing if they accept your application. And at some point it was online because Corona and they didn't want to, Corona, they didn't want to invite the people to actually come to the physical office. And so at some point when they were declining another, bar, another bunch of applications of people who wanted to join the electoral commission, they forgot to switch off the microphone in one of the coffee breaks where they were actually discussing how they falsified. And they were like, oh, you know, hey Mike, why did you say it's four against five, four? And he's like, yeah, because against is still more than, you know, (laughs) than four. And they're like, yes, but this kind of creates this feeling that some people are actually voting for. So like, this is crazy because they were going on about how they're falsifying the results for like 10 minutes with their mics on, uh, live streaming it on YouTube. And people who were following were like, okay, we got it. Uh, and then no one reacted. Okay, that's fine. That's the way it is supposed to be. Yes. so Most of the results from the polling stations were never announced. And then clearly people were like, okay, we have the results from the independent uh, observers, you know, and we actually had some polling stations where like the independent candidate won, officially won. And this has never happened before. Uh, like, this is a very big thing. And then the official results are never announced, like polling station by polling station. They just announce you the general uh, picture saying like, oh, yeah, he won. This is like the outcome. And people start complaining because they're like, show us the the.'" the ballots, show us the results. And then like, they keep silent. And two weeks later, they go, okay, we just got rid of them. You know, they're now gone. And they're like, what do you mean gone? No one has seen them. So there is basically not a single person in the country who knows the official outcomes of the elections. I mean, official as in real, not the ones officially announced. And this clearly uh, resulted in perhaps the biggest protest the country has seen if not ever, then in the last like 20 years, because the first the first day they announced the demonstration, there were like the estimates differ, but there were like from 100,000 to 400,000 people uh, gathering on the streets of Minsk, and this is big because like and it's Minsk alone. So there were also like smaller cities where people also came out, and then people started gathering every Sunday, and the numbers of people wouldn't get less. You would have like hundred, two hundred thousand people on the streets of Minsk every Sunday, and at some point the the riot police was just like, okay, we can't really do much about that, because you know sometimes there is just too much people to to tackle. So they would detain some people in the very start, they would detain some people in the very end, but like for the five hours before that, people were just marching the streets, and it was like, I don't know, perhaps the biggest the biggest kind of protest we've. Everything and the biggest unity that there has been in the civil society. Yes, and then with time, the number of people actually going out every Sunday got slow, got less, because you know it's hard to keep doing the same thing and not seeing like the immediate results. Because I feel like at some point people hoped they would go out and the next morning wake up and the president is the president <laughs> is no longer presiding, which clearly didn't happen. And then Svetlana, who's the, the elected president, uh, was forced to flee the country. And then, of course, uh, it was officially announced that she just got scared. And now she's trying like to preside uh, from Vilnius and tell us what to do from Vilnius. And she's like so weak and everything. Yes, most of the people who had not been detained by them were detained. And so the number of political prisoners went up. And there were attempts of the national strike where many businesses were encouraged not to work. And then we've had some workers striking at different factories. Uh, this was again bigger than it would usually be, but not. It, it wasn't like big enough to actually have like significant impact. And then with time, the, the activity, the actions that people take kind of got less intensive uh, as opposed to the repressions getting more and more intensified. And they started doing crazy things like they would detain a person for the white, red, white socks because this is the color of like the national flag. But come on, this is just the color, you know. Or people started expressing their solidarity by putting out the flag, the national white, red, white flag on the windows of your apartments. And at some point you would just be driving, you know, along the city and the flags are everywhere. Like literally every block of flats would have like tens of them hanging out. So they were like, okay, but these are people's balconies. So we kind of can't really do much. You know, but then they started detaining the people for, for hanging out their flags from the balcony and people were like, okay. Uh, so they started just putting white papers on the, on the windows, just, you know, a piece of A4 white paper, which is like, okay, it's not even a flag. Here we go. They started detaining people for this. And so like, we, we got really creative with how we express our, you know, <laughs> our protest and they got really rough with how they respond to that. But then I think the biggest reason for for the mass protests that we've seen is not even the falsified election results, but that the night after, people went out of uh, out of the streets of Minsk to peacefully, like, I think at this point they were not even complaining, they were asking what the fuck had happened. <laughs> and so the response of the police officers was brutal. Like, they were beaten people, they detained a lot of people, a few people were killed in this and following days. And so I feel like the, the protests that we've seen were rather a reaction and a response to, to this violence following the elections. Not even so much to the election results, which were already unfair enough, but like to the brutality that we've seen towards innocent, peaceful Protestants, you know, going out in the streets of Minsk. Yeah, so, and the protests got really creative with different ways to protest and then the the detentions and the criminal cases that were opened and started against people for now, many of them have like if you look at why people are imprisoned, it's basically nothing, and so all the court trials that we've been having, it's just crazy
2: it's I think it's very. This whole ordeal hit me very differently from any, you know, you see in news, this kind of reports of conflicts and wars and protests everywhere. Like currently Gaza-Israel conflict going on uh, with so much violence going, it doesn't really, it's become so everyday that it doesn't get in you. Like it doesn't affect you so much They're like, okay, well that's happening and it's like a monthly thing that there's a <laughs> new conflict somewhere. But this when it's people getting detained violently that you know, when it's EY peers that you've interacted with, it's a very different different effect. So could you Tell us a bit more about how the how people were actually treated. I well, I don't know how much in detail you want to go about okay. your sister, for example. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think it would be really valuable for people to know what's what happening in <laughs> their neighbors in a way. And for two peers.
1: I'd probably first respond to the part where you kind of get used to all the brutality, you know, taking place worldwide. Because this is like... <laughs> not your daily routine, but like this is something that's happening, right? Uh, And back in uh, August last year, uh, it was kind of also not very usual for Belarusians. Like although we've been living with the KGB for quite a while, uh, the repressions that people have seen were firstly mainly limited towards the people who were active in the civil society. So like NGO activists, political activists. uh, So these people were like well aware what the government can do. Uh but even we even with them, it rarely did uh did this so brutally. Uh so it kinda opened up uh the whole new picture for most of the Belarusians who haven't ever come across anything like this. But then with time, because it's been a year now since since the protests maybe not the protests yet, but it's almost been a year since the protests as well. Okay. Uh and I think the very important balance to keep here is you can't really be so pissed at every piece of news you read any longer because this is just psychologically impossible. Like, you get five news of people being unfairly detained every day, and there are still friends of yours who have been imprisoned for a year without like doing anything, uh, you know, uh, illegal or all the things that are happening. So it's it's kind of hard to force yourself to still be pissed and frustrated and uh, you know and all the mix of emotions you might be feeling. But it's also important to try not to get used to this, because at some point you find yourself reading like, "Oh, okay, another person got two weeks in prison. Okay, two weeks is just an administrative trial. Fine, they're gonna be safe in two weeks." But then it's like two weeks stolen from your life because of the color of the socks you're wearing. Uh, so I feel like this is this is a very sad process that's going on now. Is people are still facing repressions for things that are hilariously stupid, and the response that you feel inside is like, "Okay." again, like I can't even be, you don't feel angry anymore, you feel desperate. And this is like really sad. Uh, yes, and as for as for how people were treated right after the elections, which was actually one of the reasons, perhaps the main reason for the protest that occurred afterwards. Uh, so what happened is the night after the election results were falsified, before those were officially announced even, Uh, People went out to protest. They faced police brutality and a couple of thousand people were detained. Uh, At some point, we reached like a number of 7,000 detainees uh, in the country. And this is like, that's a crazy number because the detention centers are are not even equipped to to keep so many people at a time. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so they would just, all the people that were detained, uh, the relatives couldn't find them. Uh, because you just call all the detention centers and they all tell you like, oh no, not here, not here. Many wouldn't even pick up the phone because they wouldn't bother, like, you know. So they just stuffed people in the cameras and there were like five times more people that the camera could possibly fit in there. And then people were bitten and many uh, were like physically injured. The stories and the pictures that we've seen from those days uh like some of them got to the news clearly, but like the amount of content uh, that Belarusians were exposed to when you see the people live in the detention centers and when you see the pictures afterwards and you understand, okay, the way the person looks now, it's been five days since that actually happened. So imagine, you know, how, how bad it was back then. And people had serious physical injuries and people have been reporting uh, the violence. And this lasted for three to four days uh, until the protests got really big because, you know, the relatives were pissed, the friends of people were mad and like requested uh, explanations, apologies and like releasing all the people who were detained. So they were uh, released three to five days after they were detained. And then people started seeing what happened to them uh, in the detention centers, you know, throughout that time. And people started telling you stories where they had no access to food or water whatsoever. Or if like in two days they got one bottle of water for 20 people in the like two to three meter camera. Uh, and they were telling all these horrible stories where they forced to like sing the Belarusian official anthem uh, on their knees to in front of like the riot police officers and they were bitten if they don't, and they were bitten if they do still. Uh, and so all of this uh, really was shocking. And at some point they stopped even just detaining the people who actively protest. Uh, they would simply uh, detain you because you're, you know, walking on the streets uh, when they think you're not supposed to. And we were living in this very weird uh, kind of environment when during the day, Uh, cafes would be working, restaurants would be operating, people would go to the office. And it kind of from the outside seems like, you know, peaceful and quiet. And then closer to the evening at around five or six, well, the city changed, you know, it's like a mafia game. Uh, The city falls asleep and then the the revolution wakes up. Uh, Because there would be like all the police officers on the streets of the city. And uh, yeah, so they could actually detain anyone, regardless of whether you were thinking of protesting or going to the protest or just coming back home. And one of the days my sister was detained as well. They were literally just walking from the office with a bunch of friends. They're like 10 people or something when uh, the riot police just stopped them. And then they started running uh, different directions because you know exactly what happens after that. Uh, And they randomly detained three out of 10 people they could probably catch or... I don't know. That was pretty random. Uh, and so my sister also spent uh, three days, I believe, uh, in a detention center. Uh, yes, which is again uh, a very personal attachment to to what's happening and what was happening in the country. And currently, I have, I think, around five to six people I know in person that we've either studied together with or worked on different projects with who are uh who've been in prison for half a year to a year now for literally no reason and they kept keep being detained and the only thing you can do is like send them letters uh that of course get censored. Uh so there is a very limited number of topics that you can text about. Uh and this is like literally the only way you can somehow contribute to their well being if that's the word in this situation. Uh so this is very frustrating.
2: And for our listeners let let that sink in for a moment, like the Belarusian delegate that you met at your i s could just could have just been taken for a year to be beaten in some overcrowded detention center for I no know. reason whatsoever.
1: And yeah, so the Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, so the woman we elected as the president of the country, is currently uh, based in Vilnius. And she's been meeting the president and high-ranking officials of like the European countries and doing the diplomatic work, trying to work, you know, towards the victory. And there was a moment when it really felt like it's just a matter of time. It's clearly still a matter of time when this finishes because people have not disappeared. Many were forced to flee the country. Uh, Many no longer live in Minsk. And now it's a very good question if I have more people to talk to in Minsk or outside of Minsk. Uh, And if more of my friends are imprisoned or left or still living in the country. Yeah, but now it kind of feels more long term as opposed to September when at some point people were like, "Okay, it's it's almost happening, like, you know, we almost won, but then, yeah, it's probably going to take a bit more time. So the reason we can't really hold EYP events in the country now is kind of two-sided. On the one hand, that's because people are being detained, not even for doing EYP sessions, but for things as small as like sock color or, you know, just putting an A4 paper on your window and the things the police can do at this point, like you can't even predict this. It's ridiculous and you have no power to like oppose to it whatsoever. So this would mean, you know, putting the potential participants' obsessions to too much of a risk and danger, which is not even close to ever being justified. So this is one thing, but I feel like the other, and it's a pretty big thing, is just that it would be slightly inappropriate uh, both because uh, most of the people in the board are following the news and don't really feel like, you know, having fun or just uh, doing some kind of EYP-related stuff and organizing things like that. Yeah, so the the overall mood on the board of the organization, uh, the way I feel it is also pretty, like, people are down. So this, there is this risk, uh, potentially, and there is also this kind of appropriacy problem where you just don't feel like it's the time to actually have the UAP event. But then on, on the other hand, you do understand that you kind of have to keep living your life in a sense that no one knows how long it will take and you can be way more beneficial when in good health and like psychological condition. So people have been trying to kind of combine the news concerns and like their daily routines and still getting out of this political box I
0: would say. And I, I know it might be a difficult question, but how do you see things for UIP Belarus and for Belarus itself over the next kind of couple of years unfolding?
1: I think we're going to see a period. And I think the the, organizational generally, the organization generally is not living through its easiest times at the moment because Corona is clearly, like the moment it happened, uh, I was in the middle of presiding and VPing like presiding one and then VP in a different session and when this like when corona hits (laughs) I was like okay this is the end because EYP is not something you can do offline because everything that you are doing it everything that is the reason it's worth your time is is this connection and like interaction with people that EYP Belarus, according to its name, promotes. But like this is the biggest part of it, and then moving it on, online, I was like, no, this is not even happening. Like, so we're just gonna put it on hold. And I think the way the network has reacted to these changes is impressive. And even though I'm still reluctant to be actively involved in digital format sessions, because it still feels a bit, I don't know, doesn't feel. Good enough and real enough. Like there is a whole generation of EY peers if I can say a generation at this point, who have never seen you know real world sessions. So there is a bunch of delegates who are now chairs, and I feel like, and it's really the case that they do have more experience in doing this digitally than I do, because I have no clue how to like chair a digital committee. I could probably try, but that would be you know a next level challenge. So I think that the organization in generally has adapted pretty successfully, and has showed a lot of creativity in approaching this problem. And also the all the hybrid sessions where like officials gather and then delegates join online. This is like next level cool in the like given the environment that we are in. So I feel like for UIP Belarus it will also clearly not be the easiest period because we still have this struggle and on top of that we have all the political uh, problems going on in the country. So I feel like for in the next future, Belarusian UIPers would rather be joining events abroad. And kind of, I think the important aspect and the important goal and objective for the national committee today is to not lose its presence internationally. So to keep producing the delegates and supplying the network with white anyway peers, because if you just freeze it and not do anything by the time the things kind of settle down, regardless, it's very hard to predict when exactly it happens, but like, regardless of the timing, you need to have the people you need to have the resources, the human resources, to actually move it forward and kind of, you know, turn it uh, back to life and start doing things. Because if you don't, it's going to take you another couple of years at least to, to start from scratch. So I feel like what we are going to be focusing now, and I hope that's what we're going to be focusing now, is possibly doing some digital events uh, that EYP belarus hosts. And to the best of my knowledge, there is one, at least one that they're ha- currently hosting. So there is some digital regional happening in the NC. But at the same time, it's important to give this international presence. And then I hope when we are done with all of this and the things kind of settle down a little, uh, we'll be working again on building the process in, in the NC and trying to ensure the, the board positions are competitive. And we're thinking more strategically, not in terms of just surviving and persevering, but also uh you know, in how you can develop and what further steps you could be taken
2: and earlier you were saying that it wasn't so much you that were was doing things for e y p belarus it was more the timing that you happened to be there. but I would very much in a way disagree with that because, as you said, the board positions usually are not competitive, and it does require people with dedication and courage to make those things happen. And especially in this kind of times when there's geopolitical problems going on and the pandemic, recovering from this is going to take people with dedication and, you know, an inspiring personality to drag people in and to keep the organization going. So I hope all the best for future members of VYP Belarus and I hope very much hope that it's going to be a smooth-ish process in recovering from all of this as also for other NCs that are, in a way, not not, so, not in such of a predicament, but also in a difficult position to come from a place where your whole generation that's, in a way, active, hasn't seen the physical session. I do very
1: happen. much agree here. I'd probably phrase it slightly different to what I've said before. It, it does take the inspiring people and like inspirational people. There is just two things about it. There has to be certain environment that allows these people to act. And there should also be the people who actually do this. Because one without the other is kinda of hard to to, you know, to make it work. If you just have the people, regardless of what they do, it might just not work out. As opposed to when you just have the environment, it doesn't work either. Because you still need the people who are going to be you know making use of this environment and kind of pushing the organization and developing it so it does take two things and this is again why it's so important to keep this human resource and keep the organization in flow and keep it active because you can't just be building the organization with the same people who are both inspired and inspirational because they tend to burn out and if not, because something discourages them from you know being active in their organization, then simply because the time you know goes by, and the people who they've been friends with start you know living uh making kids and, like uh, getting their life together, and you are still uh presiding sessions you know internationally, and at some point you are like thirty five and that's interesting, you know. So you you need this fresh blood and uh, the human resources to keep the organization in flow. And I do believe we have the potential to do this. It's just that the whole thing that's going on at the moment will probably slow down how the organization develops. Although, in in a way, I think that not, that's not necessarily closure, but like something for you to uh, keep in mind. I also think that this is one of the things that your podcast is doing in a way. It's kind of transitioning the inspiration from the previous generation you know, to the new ones that just step in. Because you kind of open up the, the older voices uh, of the network. And this is really cool because uh, when I talk to like the EY peers of previous generations... They tell you things you couldn't imagine and you kind of know the organization and you've seen a bunch of events. But then this is a very different perspective. So like the whole idea of exchanging this kind of thoughts and giving space for the people to, to just tell their stories. I also feel like this contributes a lot to to inspiring the new generations of UAPers peers to like think big. Because at this point, it's no longer the people who you are talking to uh, at the podcast, but perhaps rather the people listening to it. Uh, hopefully. There are actually some younger UIPers peers listening, but so that's also a very cool thing to do. Thanks for giving the chance to be part of that. That's really cool.